What's up, everybody? Mac here, back again with the Odd Shopper channel, and today we're talking some college basketball bets. It's Saturday, February the 10th. We've got a main slate of games. It's something like 150 games. Ridiculous numbers, but tons of marquee matchups in places where we can exploit edges. Before we get started, make sure to hit that thumbs up button, subscribe to the channel, and hit the notification bell so you know when this and all other content goes live. We're also brought to you by BetMGM. Limited time offer here. The link is below. What you're going to do, click that link, deposit at least $5, make a $5 wager on any team, total, market, whatever it is you would like. Then you will be paid out $158 in the form of bonus bets. That's $158 you didn't have. You must be 21 or older to play in most areas. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, please call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. Again, limited time. I can guarantee you this will not be around forever, so please take advantage before it is gone. All right, Saturday slate. Not much to recap from Friday night. A bunch of Mountain West action. Depending on the line you got, San Diego State covered. I didn't end up taking it myself. I missed the best number, so I just stayed away. But yeah, I'd use Odd Shopper to find those best lines. It's going to be important. I'm recording this video in the middle of the night on Friday to try to get it out for you on Saturday. So lines are going to move. I expect them, most of them at least, a lot of them to move in our favor. But always shop them. Odd Shopper has free tools where you can look at the lines, sort by your state, find the best lines possible, which makes a big difference in the long run, especially if you're betting a lot of games. I have something like 25 or something on the card today. But we also have a lot in that package. Market-based approach to help you find, you find you plus EV spots across sports, not just college basketball. And our Discord is now included in that. It's $14.95 for a week, $49.95 for a month. The link's below. Check it out. I highly recommend it. All right, so expecting a lot of these lines to move overnight, but did run the model. A lot of these will be based on that, and then we will kind of talk through it. I parse the injuries, everything like that, to try to find these edges, but won't be exhaustive. We'll have more bets throughout the day, which I'll post on Twitter, and yeah, of course, if you have questions, reach me there. But we'll kick things off in the SEC. Auburn takes on Florida in a really good game. Right away, this one stands out to me in the Auburn side. I've been critical of this team at times for their schedule, which their coach makes it. I mean, but they've kind of answered some questions now. Before that Alabama game, they didn't have a lot of good wins. You basically just look at this team and you had Baylor non-con, they lost. Then they beat Indiana, who's not great this year. Virginia Tech, not great. USC, who's been a shell of themselves this year. So I don't know, your best win is maybe like Virginia Tech or St. Bonaventure and non-con. And that's not to say Auburn's bad. It was just questions, questions, questions. And in the SEC, they hadn't played a lot of tough competition yet either. This is a backloaded schedule. So their first game against Bama, they end up losing 79-75. That was on the road. But then they turned it around with a monster 99-81 to win. And this Auburn front court is just playing out of their minds right now, led by Janai Broom, who's maybe going to get All-American status. I don't know. I, he doesn't play maximum minutes because he doesn't have to. This Auburn team is extremely deep. And it's not just him. They're getting amazing minutes out of Jalen Williams, their, their other starting forward, who's 6'8". And this is important. You need a strong front court when you face off against Florida because this team does play with a ton of size if you look at their effective height numbers. This Florida team's kind of ridiculous. They're fourth in the country in effective height, 10th in rebounding. So they'll definitely beat you up inside. But a lot of that comes through Tyree Samuel, Alex Cotton's been pretty good for them. And Micah Hanglotten at 7-1, playing limited minutes. So it's not just they have 
you know, seven footer, six eleven guy, and Samuel at six ten, but they have the three options. And Auburn being so deep in that front court does neutralize them. Not to mention Auburn's defense is just unbelievably good. Fifth in the country in overall defensive efficiency. Biggest thing, number one in interior defense, number one overall. So Florida can't beat you on the inside, at least not as easily. Are they going to shoot the ball? Well, they're 237th in three-point rate. That's adjusted for tempo, so they're not shooting a ton of threes. They're also not very good at it. At it. 176th in three-point percentage, 19th. In three-point defense is Auburn. So even if they do shoot more threes, this defense is unbelievably good. And then a lot of the height stuff, you know, Auburn, 79th in effective height, definitely can match up with Florida inside. The rebounding edge is not stark. Florida takes a lot of shots, and they live on the offensive glass. They're second in the country in offensive rebounding right now, which surprised me. I know Houston's up there, AM's up there. But the rebounding on Auburn side, I think, does neutralize this. And then there's a few other little edges that point Auburn's direction. Sometimes this Florida team can get careless with the ball. They're 159th in turnovers committed, which is not ideal. They'll usually play Walter Clayton at the point, but sometimes Zion Pollen. But this Auburn defense is going to be creating havoc in turnovers like they always do. Top 60 in the country in turnovers forced. As far as the foul margin stuff goes, Auburn can get into foul trouble, but their rotation is so deep at this point. I'm not even really sure it matters. Unless it's like Janai Broom or somebody. Like even their bench guys, Dylan Cardwell, 6'11", Shady Johnson, 6'7". And they're not asking, Chad Baker Mararza is 6'7". They're not asking those players for a lot of minutes, but they can rotate on and off the field if there is foul trouble, on and off the court, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, like this three-point shooting for Auburn is a lot better than I expected this year. Jalen Williams at 40%. Chad Baker Mazar at 39. Trey Donaldson over 40%. This is a complete team. And once they started stacking some of these wins, you know, getting that Alabama win, who's a top 10 team in the country against Ken Palm really stood out to me. I'm surprised this is at one and a half. I would make this closer to three myself, giving us some value on the Auburn side. And just kind of for housekeeping, I started with some of the bigger games and we're going to move towards the Greece at the end of the show, but we'll talk like 10 or 12 just to give you sort of where we're headed, but Auburn will be first. All right, let's move to our second game remaining in the sec. Alabama takes on LSU. This one where, you know, it's two teams from a game I bet previously this week and lost Alabama. Against Auburn, did not get the win there, but hopefully they can bounce back against LSU, who I do not see as a complete team. Team's also not fully healthy, and they've been weird this year with their rotation. They were supposed to be a benefit beneficiary of this, you know, like two-time waiver stuff. So they do they did get some dudes cleared, but the main one, Jalen Cook missed their last game, and it's a hamstring injury. So I don't know what to make of Jalen Cook. These are easily aggravated in games. And he's been playing a lot of minutes for this team. Prior to his, you know, 21-minute outing in the last contest, this guy had been pretty consistently at 30 minutes. Like, last four games before that injury occurred, 30, 26, 35, 20. That 20-minute game, he fouled four times immediately. But Jalen Cook's a big part of this LSU team, and a reason they've had some success lately. We're not talking about the top of the SEC by any means, but Jalen Cook is an individual. He's shooting 33% from three, playing a lot of minutes, and pretty good offensively. So his his absence will be felt. And as far as the rest of LSU goes, this team has weaknesses without a doubt. Their rotation has not really been consistent. Jordan Wright hasn't given them consistent minutes, nor has Will Baker. 
Team is 84th on offense, 79th on defense. They struggle in a lot of areas where Alabama succeeds, particularly their guard play. 173rd in three-point defense. For years now, Alabama's just been a spray-and-pray team from three. They're ninth in the country in three-point rate, 15th in three-point percentage, and they just have snipers from the perimeter. So LSU being outside the top 150 in this area is not a good sign. I mean, just individually, Alabama's Mark Sears at nearly 45% from three. And Ryland Griffin's at 40%. Then you have a bunch of like bench players that are actually pretty good from 3-2. Even Latrell Wrightsell, who's worked his way into a larger role, 42% from three. There's a lot of really good shooters on this team. Sam Walters is at 41%, which is shocking considering he's a 6-10 big man. But anyway, as far as this LSU offense goes and where they try to win, they do have size, seventh in the country there. Alabama's eighth, funny enough. But neither team is very effective with their size. Bama's bigs love to foul. And LSU is still 101st in two-point percentage, which isn't good either. So, I mean, I, I don't really know what to make of this LSU team. They have not put it together. They commit a ton of turnovers. They're 266 there. They get in foul trouble. And Bama, for their own foul problems, they generate a ton of fouls. They're 38th in the country in fouls generated. LSU's outside the top 200 in fouls committed. So there's just a lot of problems here. And as far as Bama's record goes, some of you probably see this on the screen. You know, it's better than LSU's, but this team has played the third most difficult schedule in the country. It's been a very rigorous road for them to get to this point. So with Jalen Cook potentially being out with a hamstring, I think there's extra edges that point towards Bama in this spot. All right, we'll change conferences. Big Ten time. Illinois takes on Michigan State. And I'll be very honest with you. I've seen some early line movement on this, and I do not understand it. I was interested in Illinois at the plus two and a half. It's up to plus four. And Michigan State's a tricky evaluation. This team has certainly underachieved this year. They had big expectations, final four expectations. But the roster is questions. They're 14 and nine. They do play a tough schedule, so some of this at least needs to be excused away or mentioned. 11th in the country there, but it's not like Illinois had an easy road. They're 49, played Marquette in non-con. So tough, tough opponents for Illinois as well. But as far as the metrics go, they start from a place of assumptions. When you come into the year, you look at Ken Palm, whatever your analytics system of choices, assuming you have one, you have to make guesses on teams. Some of it is returning production, transfers. Those are tricky with conference changes, especially if you're coming from mid-majors and freshmen, but you have to make assumptions. And I have the inclination that Michigan State was maybe a little overrated coming into the year. And then because they've played a lot of tough opponents, including their non-conference, that they're a little overrated in the market, which is my own personal take. So not backed by math unless you make different assumptions at the beginning of the year. But this team has struggled, man. And it's not just on the road. They're playing at home here. But they have taken couple L's like Wisconsin absolutely bodied this team at home. They they lost to James Madison in the opener this year at home. And they've just lost to some bad teams lately. They got killed by Wisconsin again when they went to the Kohl Center. They just lost to Minnesota as a road team. And Minnesota's, I think, a little better than people think. But all this to say, I think there's significant questions with Michigan State. Now, these teams have already played. Michigan State did lose by three points. It was a 71-68 game. That game, Illinois did not have Terrence Shannon, who's back in the fold. And I think one of the best players in the country when he's fully right, that's to be debated at this point. But as far as stylistics go for Illinois versus Michigan State, Illinois has a significant edge on offense, and I think it's kind of across the board. 
They're 116th in height, Michigan State 105th. Their big men are not very good, especially like Sissoko on the inside. Malik Hall's always a question whether he's going to give you full effort and actually play his full game. But Illinois can certainly beat you in there with Coleman Hawkins. Shannon's excellent at getting to the basket. And Michigan State has had trouble defending guards at times. This team is also not the best shooting team. And for whatever reason, they're 311th in three-point rate. You know, like, they don't score a lot inside, or at least that's where they would be weak on paper. And they're better at shooting threes. Their three-point percentage is 43rd in the country. But this 311 three-point rate is just not justifiable to me if you're the Spartans and probably one of the reasons why they're losing. Beyond that, Illinois has massive advantages rebounding the ball. This team attacks the glass, six in the country, backed up by their height. They do generate fouls. Michigan State can get in trouble in that regard. Michigan's, Michigan State does not actually defensively rebound that well. They're 189th, and Illinois is 14th at attacking the glass, getting those second possessions via offensive rebounds. And this team's pretty good shooting the ball to begin with. I'm not even sure they're going to need to rely on that at any point in these contests. But as far as the individuals for Illinois, they've also gotten a lot of good play recently out of basically guys that I thought were going to be bench players. Like Ty Rogers has had excellent games. Terrence Shannon's back above 35% from three, expecting that to rise closer to the 40% earlier this year. Goody gives him good numbers from three. Coleman Hawkins is actually shooting 39%, which is a bit of a surprise considering he's a 6'10 stretch forward. And then Damask, one of the best offensive creators in this conference. So to me, I don't I don't even really understand why Michigan State's favored at this point, unless you're still using your preseason assumptions that this team is one of the better teams in the country, and I'm just not sure we can say that at this point. So we'll take a road team. We will take Illinois. Moving to the Big East, Providence takes on Butler. Kind of a tricky game here, too. Bubble teams that maybe are moving away from the bubble at this point, but I've been very critical of Providence. They just got an enormous win last time out against Creighton, which was a very, very frustrating game to watch. Creighton had – these weren't even like forced turnovers. I don't I don't even know what to say about Creighton just at times handing the ball to this Providence team. And then aside from that, both these teams shot the lights out. And Creighton brought it to overtime and ended up losing. But that's not this game. In this contest, we have Providence facing Butler, who I think is a very underrated team at this point. These guys already played. It was back in December, the day before Christmas Eve. It was an overtime game, but somehow Providence ended up with a 10-point victory. But Butler's played a lot better of late, and I think this team is actually a buy low and probably the more likely team to make the tournament. But as far as what Butler does, they have four studs they use. Jameel Telford, Pierre Brooks, Posh Alexander, DJ Davis. A couple of these guys are elite shooters. Pierre Brooks, 42% from three. DJ Davis gotten way better, 36%. Telford's okay at 32, and then you're not going to use Posh as a shooter. He's your point guard. So they're a pretty decent shooting team, and this Providence team has had tons of trouble scoring. They had the excellent performance against Creighton, but outside of that, they're still 140th in offensive efficiency. They're 108th in effective field goal percentage. They score a lot inside. Their shooting's not the best. They're 255th in three-point defense. And where Butler is weak is probably the interior, but their players, Andre Screen and Jalen Thomas, have gotten better throughout the year. Screen at 7-1, Thomas at 6-10. Actually giving them pretty decent minutes on the interior of late, especially defensively. And then on the Butler side, this team is very good shooting. 98th in three-point percentage. We mentioned some of their individual statistics 
Providence is outside the top 100 in three-point defense. There's also Butler never really turns the ball over on offense. Posh is an excellent point guard for what he lacks in shooting. So that's something you can hang your hat on as well here. Honestly, I think Providence is a pretty decent team. With, without Bryce Hopkins, they have one good win. It came in their last time out against Creighton. But we're still kind of buying low on a Butler team, and ultimately this one is just a spot where the line, to me, should be a little bit wider than the current number. So we'll take Butler minus three and a half, probably looking at this going through four later in the day. Big 10, bottom of the Big 10, we have Maryland taken on Ohio State. And if it weren't for Michigan, these teams would be the laughing stock of this conference. But holy smokes, is this Ohio State team lost a ton of coin flips. Earlier in the year, there was at least a thought this team could make the NCAA tournament. But they've now lost eight of nine. Their only win came against Penn State, but their losses, just unbelievable run of single-digit losses. Iowa, they lost by two. Indiana by three. Those are their last two games. Haven't been healthy. And at least they return home here. A lot of this has been on the road. Indiana away. Michigan away. Nebraska, Northwestern, Iowa away. But it's not like their woes have been fully cured at home. Maryland has struggled as well, though. So it's not like this is just on the Ohio State side. Maryland is, they've won two of their last six, and some of those have been at home, some of those have been away. But these teams are built completely different. Maryland excels on offense, or excuse me, defense. They're ninth in the country on defense, 217th on offense. Ohio State's 33rd on offense, 100th on defense, and I think they do more things just a little bit better, like effective field goal percentage. Maryland is 307th, Ohio State is 167th. As far as where these teams win, Ohio State actually has multiple paths to victory. I think their biggest weakness is defending the perimeter. Luckily, Maryland is so bad at shooting. Maryland is 341st in three-point percentage. Ohio State's outside the top 300 at defending the three, but if you can't hit open threes, it doesn't matter how bad your opponent is on defense. Conversely, Ohio State pretty decent at shooting the three. They're 168 there, and they've gotten good minutes out of Felix Akpara on the interior. When he doesn't foul, that is a major concern, but Maryland... Hopefully, Julian Reese is actually pretty good at drawing fouls, so this is a big worry for me. But I do like what Ohio State has in the front court if you get Akpara staying out of foul trouble. And that's probably going to be the key to the game because Maryland is eighth in interior defense. We mentioned they do draw fouls. These teams are identical in height, 158th to 159th. And I don't really think Ohio State has a lot of depth on the inside outside of Akpara. You're talking about players like Zed Key, who's been benched. I don't know. Battle. Six seven, not a true five though. So this is kind of a big issue, I think, for Ohio State at times. But battle still for everything. He he lacks on defense, forty four percent from three. Gale and Bruce Thornton are severe three point regression candidates. Positively, they've not shot the ball well this year. And then you just don't have anything offensively on the other side for Maryland this year. Horrific shooting across the board. Their best three point shooters, Jameer Young at thirty five percent, Dante Scott thirty four. Deshaun Harris-Smith, their freshman's at 16. He shot 56 threes too. Jordan Geronimo's at 15% from three. I mean, this is just absolutely egregious on the inside from these teams. So we'll back Ohio State. This is a greasy Big Ten spread, but the value is here. I expect this to probably go to like two and a half, so not a ton of movement expected. Big 12 time. Houston takes on Cincinnati. Surprised this line isn't a little wider. Houston's dealt with some injuries. Guys banged up recently. 
Francis, Tugler, but they all appear they're going to play in this game. At times, Houston can also foul too. We've seen Francis foul, and we've seen Sharp, Shed, basically all these guys, especially their bigs, foul incessantly. But I'm not sure that's going to be a huge problem against Cincinnati, who is 179th in fouls generated. So right away, that stands out as something where Houston, hopefully you can keep your hands to yourselves, not jump over the back like they tend to do because Cincinnati's not drawing a ton, ton of fouls. And then if Houston has their starting five in their short bench on the floor at any point for the length of this contest, this probably gets out of hand. Just vast differences across the board. Houston's our number one team in defensive efficiency, basically across all platforms. So this is consistent. Awesome rebounding team, despite lacking height. This is just effort. They're 340th. Cincinnati's 13th, but rebounding, there's not really many edges. Houston 17th, Cincinnati is fourth. And then Victor Locken, one of the bigs for this Cincinnati team has been limited recently. I can't remember if it's an injury or an illness, but he's been below 20 minutes in the last two contests. They've been relying on Aziz Bandago. So this is a, I don't know. I don't think full strength Cincinnati front court. We'll see how it actually ends up. But as far as some of the shooting stuff, Houston still 19th in offensive efficiency. They play well, fairly well inside. They defend the interior well, so that matches up well against Bandango and Lockin. This team is pretty good at shooting threes. They're 112th in three-point percentage. A lot of that coming via Cryer, but Shed's actually increased his performance lately, and he's jumped to 36% from three. Cryer's at 38. Emmanuel Sharp is at 36, and then you get decent bench minutes with a guy like Damian Dunn. And they've actually developed their depth pretty well, so aside from just having Roberts, and Francis on the interior, like Tugler's played a decent amount and he's played well, especially offensively. He's one of the best offensive rebounders, has an elite block percentage, which if you were to, his sample's not large, but if you were to extend the sample large enough to include Tugler, he'd be 19th in the country in block percentage. So an amazing defender when you actually get him on the floor. And you can basically say that about all the players for this Houston team. Where's Cincinnati? Now they've been banged up throughout the year. Bandango's been injured. You basically had Lockin limited of late. CJ Frederick hasn't played in many, many games. So not fully healthy, but I'm not buying this team as a shooting threat. Their best shooter, John Newman's at 35%, Lukosius at 35%, and everyone else is below that mark with plenty of guys below the 30% mark just individually. Like Day Day Thomas is at 24% from three. So Cincinnati can't shoot either. They're going to be shooting into an elite defense. And the defense that's excellent inside where Cincinnati tries to win, like this this Bearcats team is 248th in three-point rate. They're not going to shoot a lot of them. And then otherwise, aside from them being strong inside, Houston that is, they're forcing the third most turnovers, Cincinnati 137th in turnovers committed. Just a ton of edges here for this Houston team. Coming off what, what was a very easy win last time out where Samson got ejected. Watch that if you haven't seen it. It was against OK State. All right, back to the Big East. St. John's takes on Marquette. I'll be at this game. Should be fun. It's National Marquette Day. Have fun for those of you that celebrate. It's basically like Marquette's version of homecoming because they don't have football. But they're six and a half. This is probably going to move, I won't lie. So if you're watching this in the morning, don't be surprised if you see like a seven and a half. But my model makes this around eight, eight and a half. So hopefully you can still mine some value. Marquette has been banged up all year. It's been ridiculous. They've been able to get to where they are. Sean Jones tore his ACL. They had Chase Ross out for weeks. Cam Jones missed time with an injury. He's back now. And 
The other thing is Marquette's been off for a week. So Cam Jones only played 21 minutes in their last contest. Somehow the dude like flamethrowed for 31 points and he's an excellent shooter. But now the rest, I think, behooves Marquette. And as far as like motivation stuff goes, coming off the long rest period, again, this is Marquette's biggest home game of the year as far as just hype in the city with it being like their version of homecoming. So this roster, you do have great shooters. Joplin's at 41%, and then Kolick and Cam Jones are hovering around 40% themselves from three. On the inside, you got 6'11", Oso Igadaro, who's one of the best big men in the pick and roll in the country. And then you have St. John's on the other side, who's been up and down all year. They're pretty good on defense. I question the interior. Soriano's amazing around the basket, but Marquette's going to move him away. And then this team has not been great at defending the three. 79th there, Marquette is 53rd in three-point rate. And we've, we've talked about Marquette a lot. We've finally seen some of this three-point regression. There was a point this year where this team was outside the top 250 in three-point percentage. They've jumped all the way back up to 163. This team was a top 100 unit last year with the same exact player personnel with the exception of Omax Prosper, who's in the NBA, and he doesn't shoot threes anyway. So all this suits Marquette. Outside of that, rebounding, this is a bit of an issue, if you want to call it that. St. John's 41, Marquette 222. Marquette's 28th in effective height. St. John's is 14 or 114. Aside from Oso, they're getting minutes out of Ben Gold. And this team is pretty good size across the board. You dive into the St. John's numbers. They're actually fourth in offensive rebounding, which makes sense. This team is terrible shooting the ball, 217. They don't shoot the three well. They're actually not even great at shooting in the inside. They're 203rd there, 213th from three. They're reliant on these second chance opportunities. And Marquette is good defensively rebounding. So I'm not really too worried about this. They just don't prioritize attacking the glass on the offensive end. They're 259th there. So to me, these Marquette rebounding numbers are just fine. Marquette ninth in the country, forcing turnovers. St. John's outside the top 100 and committing them. Marquette rarely is in foul trouble. St. John's is constantly in foul trouble. They're 249th in fouls committed. We saw that last time with R.J. Lewis. And Soriano has a problem with this as well. I think this goes through seven. So the time to back Marquette likely is now in one of their biggest games of the year. We'll go back to the Big 12. Baylor takes on Kansas. This is one that's moved a lot, and it's kind of in a spot where I think we can take a look at the Baylor side now. What I'll say is if you're if you're nervous about this, do make it closer to the original line, which is minus six. But it's a lot of points for a Big 12 team in Baylor who has a ton of strengths. So I don't know. This is one I, I did take. I was a little nervous clicking the button because Baylor does struggle on defense. They're 90th there. They're really bad on the inside. They're 207th. That's where you're going to have to face Hunter Dickinson. But this Baylor team is also number one in the country at shooting threes. And Kansas is 128th at defending the three. So it's not quite the same gap and advantage you see like Dickinson over the Baylor front court. But this is a pretty sizable advantage Baylor's direction over Kansas. And it's not just that. Baylor does have height. They match up fairly well against Kansas. The Jayhawks are sixth in effective height. Baylor's 22nd. Rebounding is actually an edge Baylor's direction. This team hits the glass really well, especially in the offensive end. As far as like turnovers go, they're rarely turning the ball over top 100 and turnovers forced. Foul trouble, not really a problem for either team. 
the pace in this game is middling, so you're not dealing with like low possessions or something like that. Honestly, I was a little surprised to see this shootout in favor of Kansas, and, and part of it makes sense. Kansas is, I think, deep in their rotation. Furphy, he's a concern on defense, but the guy's an absolute bucket on offense. They've gotten 30-plus minutes out of him, and he's shooting 45% from three, or 42% from three. Dewan Harris, your normal point guard, he's awesome. McCullough's been banged up. That does make me nervous at times, but he's played well over 30 minutes last two games. And then Hunter Dickinson's one of the best big men in the country with his 7-2 stature. There's just advantages both sides is really the best way I can put this. And my model made it closer to six. So we'll we'll take a stab on this Baylor side. Don't feel comfortable. But the numbers, they say we should be looking at the Bears. So going to play it sometimes. Model smarter than my dumb brain. North Carolina takes on Miami. Wasn't going to bet this one either until the line moved. And I think it's likely to move a little bit more with Miami being in like free fall. This team is egregious and it's not really defensible. They take a ton of transfers. They spend a lot of money on them and they've really struggled. More problematic yet, Kaishan George, their 6'8 freshman, got injured immediately in their last game and didn't return. His status is extremely murky, and he's an important player. Not only is he 6'8", the guy shoots 42% from three. They do have other shooters like Wuga Poplar's at 44%, but Nigel, 37, that's a bit of a regression. And Matt Cleveland, he's as streaky as they come, 37%, but will disappear for games entirely. But removing George from the rotation is not ideal to me. That means you got to play a smaller lineup. you got to play Bensley Joseph more at 6'2". So you lose size and you're facing North Carolina, who is nothing but size. You know, even if George was in the lineup, North Carolina is just massive mismatch on the interior. 60th and effective height is UNC, Miami 232. And basically all these interior metrics are vastly in favor of North Carolina. That's because they have Armando Baycott and Harrison Ingram. And Miami's 270th at defending the interior. North Carolina's rarely in foul trouble. Miami doesn't foul a ton, but I mean, they're super, super volatile. Basically, if Norchad gets in foul trouble, this team is, is cooked. And Norchad's foul numbers are middling. Four fouls per 40 minutes. So, I mean, he's like on the verge of foul trouble often. He's not as bad as some other big men in the country, but he's far from a secure thing to play like 30 minutes in a matchup like this, where you have just elite foul drawing bigs across the board. Like Baycott draws 5.2 per 40 minutes. Harrison Ingram is also pretty good in this regard. So, I mean, it's far from an easy matchup inside for Norchad, who's been the best player for this team. And then can they shoot over the top? And I'm not sure about that either. Miami does shoot the three well. North Carolina is 22nd in three-point defense. I guess maybe what this could come down to is the status of Seth Tremble, who's been one of the better defenders for this team. If you're worried about him, I think you could just wait and take North Carolina at a later point in time. But I think Seth Tremble plays, and with his length, he should be able to defend some of these guards and give R.J. Davis even just a little bit of a breather. But that's where we'll go, North Carolina on the road against this Miami team in free fall. And holy smokes, has it gotten bad for this Miami team? They have four wins since the calendar turned over to 2024. All right, I know we have a couple more, and here's a fun one. West Virginia taking on Texas. All right. So the crux of the argument here is this is the first time West Virginia's 
fully healthy this entire season. So I'm not going to take too much time on this game. You've basically had injuries to every single premier player on this team. Raekwon Battle was a two-time transfer. Quinn Slazinski's missed time. Jesse Edwards missed a ton of time. Kirk Creesa missed time earlier in the year with a sprained ankle. A cook, a cook just came back from injury. And this team does have playmakers like Seth Wilson, 38% from three. Kirk Kreese is at 43%. He's stepped up his game a lot as a point guard transfer from Arizona. And now you have size like Jesse Edwards being back 6'11". He's awesome. Quinn Salzinski, 6'9". Pat Sumnick has given them decent minutes at 6'8". A Cook a Cook is 6'10". We don't know what this West Virginia team looks like with everything put together. We do know what Texas looks like. They're pretty good limitations. They've had to change their rotation a bit. Chendall Weaver is playing a ton for this team right now. They just haven't gotten the minutes they thought they would out of Ithiel Horton. They're good shooting the ball, but that basically comes from one player, Max Acemas. Their interior is awesome. Dylan Mitchell's a really athletic defender. He has a ton of size. But Dylan Disu's a major foul liability. And now that you have all those big men back for West Virginia, this could be a major issue. And I mean, the best matchup that you exploit if you're Texas is the inside. And I don't even know if this is exploitable anymore. 302nd in interior defense is West Virginia. I don't even know how we look at this number considering all the injuries they had. I would guess they're better, but we just flat out don't know. You're getting double digits here, which is enough for me to take a stab on with West Virginia. I realize the number's now not appearing on the screen. The number that I took was plus 12. So sorry about that. Not sure why that didn't pop up, but plus 12 was the number. Pac-12, Arizona State takes on Utah. This is one I just expect to move in Utah's favor. Arizona State doesn't do a lot of things well. They're a weird team. They press a ton, but Utah's pretty secure with their ball carriers. They don't, or their ball handlers, I should say. I got football on my mind, I guess. They don't turn the ball over a ton, and Utah has massive advantages, particularly inside. Fifth in effective fight, Arizona State is 100th. Shooting, Arizona State is 290th. Utah is 41st. Arizona State wins with this like havoc-creating defense. They cannot score unless they're generating turnovers, scoring in transition. They're 324th in three-point percentage, 238th on the inside. Utah with Carlson is much different, and Smith, they've both been awesome. 64th on the interior scoring, 41st from three, and they'll just have massive advantages here across the board. Second chance opportunities will be there. 91st in total rebounding. Arizona State does not do that well. And then turnover margin, I don't think this is going to be a problem with the secure ball handlers on the Utah side. So we'll take that. I think this moves through 12 if you want to take it now. All right, we're to the greasy section. We're doing two games, and then I'm going to rapid fire the other ones that are left. Green Bay takes on Youngstown State. If you haven't been watching Green Bay, this team is a covering machine in the horizon. They were the worst team in the country last year, right up with it. New coach, Sundance, awesome. Sundance Wicks, I believe his name is. Guy's done an incredible job with the Phoenix, facing Youngstown State. So right away, all the metrics basically favor Youngstown State but this is a point spread and how many points is the right amount effective field goal percentage. Green Bay is actually better than Youngstown, despite being worse in overall offensive efficiency. A lot of that comes from stuff like rebounding. So just pure shooting Green Bay 56 in an effective field goal. Youngstown 156 interior scoring percentage. 36 is Green Bay Youngstown 111 from three one sixteenth Green Bay two thirteenth for Youngstown. Green Bay shoots a million threes. So they will be seeding height. Yes. 325 to 157. Rebounding is actually not as bad as you would think, 130 to 58. But this team is efficient. They're not wasting possessions. And that's huge in a game like this when you're getting a lot of points. Green Bay also plays really slow, 351 in tempo. 
So you're looking at teams reducing possessions, making the value of the point exceedingly important in games like this. Green Bay fits that mold. This is coming down under 10. I don't see any other way. That's definitely not going to move in Youngstown's favor. So time to take it is now. I would take this through eight. Last one we'll talk about in depth. Another little mini wagon on this show. Tennessee Martin takes on Western Illinois. We've been back in Western Illinois a lot. And in this game, love just looking at player personnel. You have significant advantages for this Western Illinois team. Tennessee Martin is one player in the top 20. It's Jordan Sears. He's, he's very good. He's number five. But this Western Illinois team has the number two player, Drew Cisse, number 11, and J.J. Calicon, 17, Josiah West, 23, Ryan Myers. A lot of really good players in this Ohio Valley Conference on Western Illinois, and they defend extremely well. They defend the area of the court that Tennessee Martin excels in, too. This is not a team that scores inside 252, but from three, they're 93rd in three-point percentage. Well, these guards on Western Illinois, 24th in defending the three. Excellent numbers here. And this Western Illinois team is another team that attacks the glass really well. Ninth in the country in offensive rebounding, 16th in total rebounding. This is enough for me in this spot. We're going back to Western Illinois, minus one. Again, I think this one moves, so try to get this as soon as you can. A couple of random throwaways that I took in the extra section. I did take Idaho State, minus three. Wofford, minus five and a half. Ball State, plus three and a half. Chattanooga, UNC, Greensboro, under 144 and a half. William and Mary, Delaware, under 144 and a half. George Mason, Davidson, under 143 and a half. Richmond, minus nine against LaSalle. Stony Brook, minus three and a half against Campbell. Indiana State, minus six against Missouri State. Iona, minus three and a half. Monmouth, plus three and a half. Columbia, plus five. And that is it. Appreciate you guys very much. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. Reach out on Twitter. It's the best place to reach me. If you have questions, comments, whatever. If you want to know a spread to a game, my model will give you where it thinks value is. Maybe there's value, maybe there's not. But ask me. I'm happy to talk. Anyway, thank you. Good luck, everyone. We'll see you next time.